0: Renee, do you have any connection or stories about James Beard?
1: Well, the first cookbook I ever bought myself Mm -hmm. was by James Beard. Oh really, which one? It was his James Beard Simple Foods. When was that? I was in college and I took a ridiculous amount of time to make up my mind whether to buy the book or not because back then, I don't know, it was like $18 or something, but that's a lot of money. Oh my God,
0: that's a lot of money, I understand.
1: (laughs) And, you know, it had that amazing cover in kind of watercolor Mm -hmm. drawing form of him and his bow tie. Yeah. And it just seemed playful and approachable. And I remember standing in the bookstore for a really long time, page after page, just grateful for how approachable he made cooking. Yeah. He was real. It didn't have to be fancy like in the pages of Gourmet, Mm -hmm. which I loved and appreciated and respected.
0: Which he wrote for, by the way.
1: The thing is, though, he made it real. I had been a baker up until then. I hadn't really cooked. And I was intimidated, right, by reading Gourmet for so many years and all these other, you know, fancy, lofty magazines and cookbooks. And I thought, maybe I can do this.
0: Wow, that's that's wonderful.
1: Now, what about you, James Beard? Connection?
0: I won three Beard Awards, which is wonderful, <laughs> you know, which is great. Well,
1: there's that. There's but you that. know and, what I mean.
0: But, you know, you think about it. You're saying it's all about simplicity, all about American cooking, all about non-elitist everything. And of course, mm-hmm. the Beard Awards are very elite. They are the best of the best of the best. Yeah. It's called the Oscars of the food world. So it's interesting. There's this big juxtaposition between you as a consumer and me as a food writer about James Beard, and I have some of his books. I've only cooked some recipes, not a lot out of them, but he's more of an ideal for me. He exists more kind of on a shelf of American cooking and bringing the concept of seasonal cooking and cooking with fresh ingredients, cooking locally, using great fresh ingredients. That's something that's so ordinary now. But back then Beard introduced this to America. So that's how I think of Beard. He's more theoretical for me than actually practical of cooking out of his cookbooks.
1: Oh, that's so interesting because he was so hands on hmm. in his books. Yes. Right? It's true. It just it reminds me of the Nigel Slater Diaries in recent yeah. years. Yeah. Because in a way I feel like that's a precursor or maybe a natural progression of all of the Instagram and blogging that's been done in recent years where people's personal experience in the kitchen. But James just wasn't talking about himself. By doing what he did, he gave me permission and information that I needed to do it on my own.
0: That's interesting, what you say, to think about Beard as a precursor to what we now know as food blogging and, of course, the food writing. And there were others back then to MFK Fisher and many other writers, but Beard's simplicity in talking directly to the person. And today we have a guest who knows an awful lot about Beard and his position and place in American cooking. And he has a terrific new biography out called The Man Who Ate Too Much. John Birdsall is a two-time James Beard Award-winning writer. There is James Beard again. Oh, brother. A winning writer focusing on culture and society. Welcome to the show, John.
1: Welcome, John.
0: Uh, Thank you very much. It's
2: a thrill to be here.
1: John, where did you get the idea for the book? When did that come to you?
2: Well... It all started with an essay that I wrote in 2013. It was called America, Your Food is So Gay. Mm -hmm. I wrote it for the print quarterly Lucky Peach. At that time, there was no Lucky Peach website. The magazine was published four times a year, and each issue had a theme. And so for the gender issue, I had been kind of like simmering with a sense of injustice because I really loved Lucky Peach. It was really kind of a document of chef and restaurant life. And especially at that time, the chef experience in America was predominantly male, really overwhelmingly male, you know, predominantly straight. Yes. There weren't a lot of queer voices coming through. And, you know, Lucky Peach wasn't reflecting the lives of LGBTQ cooks, you know, people in the restaurant industry. And I just had this sense of resentment because I felt like, you know, every chef I knew, and I used to be a chef myself for about 17 years, Mm. every chef I knew, the sort of pinnacle of their career was to win a James Beard Award. And I thought, you know, this can be a really homophobic industry. Yes, it can queer people's experience in the kitchen, you know, including mine and people I worked with, could be very, like, demeaning. You would do the work and put up with homophobic comments or just little asides, and you sort of put up with it just because you really wanted to do the work. And so I felt like, you know, it was definitely time to say, hey, look, every one of you, you guys predominantly wants to wear this image of James Beard around your neck on a medal. But, you know, how dare you not acknowledge that he was gay, that he had a really kind of difficult experience of being gay, which was not at all uncommon for men and women in the mid-20th century, you know, he's really kind of lived in a lot of fear and shame about his queerness and just kind of fear of being exposed and having it ruin his career. So I, you know, wrote this essay about this kind of unacknowledged influence of gay male food writers on American food culture in the 20th century, writing about Beard, Craig Claiborne, um, the great food editor of the New York Times, and Richard Olney, the sort of cookbook author and French cooking guru. You know, it kind of stirred up some attention after it was published. I won a James Beard Award for it, which, thank you very much. Yes, you did. Congratulations. That felt great. And then, you know, Beard was the figure who I couldn't stop thinking about. His experience Mm -hmm. seemed kind of the most poignant, also, you know, instructive about the kind of influence of queer culture and sensibility on mainstream American food. You know, at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, the 1950s through the
0: 1980s. So, yeah. So here comes a big question then. How did his being gay shape or benefit or hinder his career and how people accepted him?
2: Well, he never acknowledged he was gay publicly during his lifetime, so he never came out. He mm-hmm. you know, was born in 1903, he died at the beginning of 1985. As a young man growing up in Portland, Oregon, the conditions there were not unlike really anywhere else in the United States, although they had their own dynamic. But there were really dire consequences for being publicly exposed as being gay at that time. And there were legal consequences. It could ruin your career. There was even a eugenics Mm. law. If you were sort of convicted of lewdness or perversion, which is what queer people would be convicted of, you might have to undergo forced stereotypes sterilization under eugenics laws.
0: When did that law finally come off the books?
2: Yeah, so the law went on the books in 1917, and it wasn't until 1983 when it was erased from the books. Mm. I mean, it had sort of gone dormant. You know, people weren't being forcibly sterilized since, I don't know, when the last examples were probably the 1930s. But it was still Mm. there on the books. Of course, not just gay men, but, you know, people with cognitive disabilities and people convicted of, of, of sex crimes. Yeah, so it was a brutal time for LGBTQ Americans. And it wasn't like, you know, you could sort of come out You could say, you know, in like the 1950s and even the 1960s, -hmm. I mean, you couldn't let people publicly know that you were queer and just kind of, you know, resume the life that you had before. It would change everything. And for somebody like James Beard, who relied on selling cookbooks to, you know, mainstream, somewhat conservative audience of... Mostly female. Yeah, mostly female, although one of his kind of accomplishments was that he broadened interest in American food to include men as well, you know, partly because of his own presence and in large degree because of the cooking classes that he conducted. A lot of men, sometimes with their wives, would sign up for those. So, you know, even in the 1970s, after gay liberation had begun, you know, after the Stonewall riots of 1969, it wasn't a safe thing to do by any means. And, you know, Beard was a national figure by that point. He had so much to lose. It just really wasn't a possibility, nor would his publisher or editors have allowed that to happen because it would have made his Mm. book sales plummet.
1: And I think we forget, even though things aren't equal by any stretch of the imagination today, we forget what you just said, which is that you couldn't just make an announcement and continue on. Like, everything changed.
2: Right, everything changed. I mean... Craig Claiborne, for instance, came out publicly really at the end of his career. He was no longer food editor of the New York Times. So in 1982, he wrote a memoir called A Feast Made for Laughter. And Mm -hmm. admittedly, he came out in a really awkward way, sort of talking about spooning with his father when he was a boy (laughs) growing up in Mississippi. (laughs) So it was a strange and awkward revelation. But I think it does point to how difficult it was to do that. And, you know, of course... Even if in the 1970s there was relatively more acceptance generally of gay people, of gay civil rights, by the early 1980s the sort of AIDS-HIV crisis had kind of re-stigmatized gay people in the eyes of America. I mean, Beard died at the beginning of 1985. It was later that year that the revelations about Rock Hudson came out. Mm. And, you know, people's reaction to that wasn't generally like one of compassion. It was one of shock, you know, just sort of trying to deal with the, idea of this great symbol of male sexuality in Hollywood, this great leading man, you know, how could he have been gay? (laughs) So it was not an easy thing. And it wasn't really possible for someone who had as mainstream a presence as Beard just to casually come out.
1: But another mainstream figure at the same time, you know, did get a lot more attention, Julia Child. They were contemporaries, but also her name is much more common in households. Than James Beard. Right. Yeah,
2: I mean, Julia has this great, and, you know, rightfully so, has this great enduring legacy Mm -hmm. and, you know, really kind of a mythology. There's been this sort of great mythology about Julia and her contributions to cooking in America. And as you say, James and Julia were contemporaries when mastering the art of French cooking was published in 1961. Judith Jones, who was a great editor at Knopf, who had really championed Julia and Simca's and Louisette Zatbertol's book, reached out to James Beard, who was, you know, the most famous food personality in America, certainly in New York City, and had asked if he would help to promote the book, really introduce Julia and Simca to the American food establishment, which he did
1: Mm.
2: really generously and helped to host a launch party for the book in New York City. And at that time, New York food media, you know, cookbook publishing in America had a really tiny circle of gatekeepers and they were just a group of editors in New York City. And it was very hard to crack that little circle. And, you know, with an introduction from James Beard, these doors kind of magically opened And so, you know, James and Julia had a kind of really deep friendship and almost a symbiotic relationship at the beginning, where they both kind of helped each other. James would have Julia teach some cooking classes at his cooking school at his house in Greenwich Village as another way of kind of introducing her to the New York food public. She was always grateful for that, but then as her fame rose, really primarily through television.
0: For the French chef.
2: Yeah, the French chef.
0: Which is the first one. She
2: really started to eclipse James. And it was a difficult thing for him, you know, to see her star rise. And he was jealous of her success. It was a struggle, even for someone as famous as James Beard, to make a living just writing cookbooks. And so if you could write cookbooks and also be on television. That's where, you know, suddenly some serious money was a possibility. So he was envious of Julia's financial success. I mean, Julia also had things that James didn't, which was, you know, family money.
0: Yes, that's true.
2: Yes. Her husband, Paul's pension from the U.S. government. (laughs) Um, Right,
1: safety. Yes.
2: So it kind of allowed her things that he didn't really have. You know, she never did any commercial endorsements, you know, in part because she just didn't need to financially, whereas James... And Beard did. He did. And as his fame grew and his expenses grew, you know, he had this kind of large household of employees, you know, class assistants and, you know, a couple of administrative assistants. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: He just kind of had these enormous expenses. And so, yeah, there were very few... Companies that he turned down. To his credit, he did always turn down. There's a company that made really bad cooking wine, and that was that was <laughs> <laughs> that was some, something that he refused to do. But I, I but I even found um, you know after his great 1972 book, James Beard's American Cookery, kind of
0: cemented his late fame. But there's two questions I have about this relationship with Julia. Number one, what was Julia's take on his being gay? Did she know? Did it affect how she reacted to him? And the other question is, why did she take off and why didn't he take off? Because he was already famous when she came to America. But why didn't he become as big and as popular and as beloved as she? Uh, To address the second part first, I think, I mean, it was, of course, because of her great talent
2: and personality, just this kind of great force of personality that she would show on the camera. But Mm. also, I think as Americans' taste in food changed, Julia really was lucky in a way that she seemed to really kind of express America's changing taste in food in the 1960s. Mm. I mean, Beard had to struggle in the 1950s against this huge American, you know, industrial
0: food. Industrialization, yeah. Yeah,
2: food establishment. I mean, you know, some of the best selling cookbooks in american history were you know written to sell sell products like you know still one of the best selling american cookbooks is the 1950 betty crocker's picture cookbook
0: mm. i confess i have a copy
2: i mean it's it's <laughs> You know, as a sort of vintage kind of object, it's great. Yeah, I don't
0: cook from it, but I do have it. Mm -hmm.
2: But, you know, there was, obviously, we know there was no Betty Crocker. It was, you know, written by a test kitchen of women home economists. And, you know, it's a book mostly about baking recipes. And so, you know, General Mills wanted to sell flour. And so, you know, they sort of created this image of American food as, you know, baking heavy. But, you know, to get back to Julia, yes, of course she knew that James was gay. You know, Julia was very progressive politically, as was James. But mm-hmm. they were with the time that she lived and the sort of upper middle class that she grew up in, there were strict rules about dealing with people who were gay. And the primary rule was that you just never talked about it. It was just never spoken about. You know, later in life, Mm -hmm. Julia would make, we can see them now as homophobic comments about gay people, especially in the 1970s, when gay liberation was happening. And, you know, the sort of gay rights movement was really on display, especially in San Francisco, a city that she loved. Mm -hmm. And she was just very offended by that. And people would say, well, she couldn't have been homophobic because she was friends with James Beard. And I think she was only able to be friends with James Beard because he played by the rules. You know, I think it would have been considered, like, boorish, a really bad Mm -hmm. form if you spoke about being gay in, you know, quote-unquote polite society.
0: But even that statement, she can't be homophobic because she's friends with James Beard. How many men and women do I know who are homophobic? They 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 have their own internalized homophobia and they are gay. And so to say that she can't be because she knows James Beard is sort of a very naive way of addressing that issue. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like saying, oh, I can't be racist.
2: My best friend in college was black. You know, it's, 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 there can easily be bias, Mm -hmm. even if you personally don't feel like you are racist or homophobic. So
0: this must have put a lot of pressure on Beard because he adored Julia. That's very obvious. But at the same time, He had a skirt issues. He had to sort of hold things in. He had to hold his tongue. And that just, I think, is an example of the dilemma he found himself in all of his life, especially with this woman who is so free and so open and so expressive. You talk about in the book, he's a huge character and very funny and very beloved. But he had to, like, hold a lot of that in. Yes,
2: exactly. He did. And he was also... Really skilled at kind of creating a myth about himself.
0: <laughs> yes, he was.
2: He would tell lies about his past, his childhood, his upbringing, or he would shade them heavily,
1: oh. hmm. embellish them, if you will.
2: He didn't get married to a woman. He didn't pretend to have any romantic interest in women, which, you know, a lot of gay men ended up doing. Yes, they did. But he would constantly punt. Mm-hmm. Like women who bought his cookbooks, when they met him, some would say, oh, Mr. Beard, I'd be terrified to cook for you. And it's a good thing that you never took a wife because what could she cook for the great James Beard? And he would always sort of punt and say, oh, yes, <sighs> you know, who would marry me? You know, I'm such an old committed bachelor. You know, who would who would possibly marry me?
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: A lot of experience for queer people in the mid 20th century, especially, was heavily coded. There were things that you would say in public things you would say in society that everyone agreed would kind of skirt uncomfortable conversations. And then, you know, when you were alone in private with your queer circle of friends, your personality would be very different, of course. But there was an unbridgeable chasm between those two parts of your personality. There was no bleed through, except in Beard's case, you know, starting in the early 1970s, Of course, Stonewall happened in late June 1969. And so the spirit of gay liberation was in the air. And, you know, Beard kind of takes a few tentative steps out of the closet, has a younger assistant for his cooking classes, a guy named Carl Jerome, who was definitely of the post-Stonewall generation. He didn't hide who he was. He didn't apologize for being gay. He was who he was. And James found this fascinating, but also really terrifying. But, you know, around Carl, he, you know, he started wearing, like, blue jeans. You know, he had to have them made, especially because he was a Mm -hmm. large man. Started wearing blue jeans and T-shirts. And, you know, some of his older friends and handlers, his editors, were just really horrified. Like, what are you doing? You're going to destroy your career. This is unseemly for James Beard to be doing this.
1: Well, and even that he had handlers... Right. I can't imagine how soul-crushing that would have been.
2: Right. I mean, it's nothing he wasn't used to, however. So he wrote his first cookbook, Or and Canapé, in 1940. By 1949, when he wrote his fourth book, which is the Fireside Cookbook, you can really see an editor and a publishing house really taking James's image in hand and really kind of cultivating this professorial, avuncular image for James Beard. In his earlier books, in his first three books that he did Mm-hmm. for Barrows, you know, you can kind of see James's authentic voice. You can hear it. It's sort of fun and sassy, and he's kind of campy and even making a few sexual allusions in some jokes. And by 1949, when Simon & Schuster publishes the Fireside Cookbook, you know, that's when you start to see the James Beard that we know from later years. You know, he'd be wearing tweeds and the bow ties and, you know, he's a serious lover of wine and food. You know, the dean of American cookery, as he was known.
0: This is an interesting question. I always see him in a bow tie was that an affectation that was he put on as a way of sort of being the dean of american cookery based upon what people are saying or is it just was it a sartorial choice of his own
2: i think he liked the look and you know he wasn't just wearing bow ties but he was wearing quite loud bow ties yes mm-hmm. he did
0: It had to come out somewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, as I said, he was used to having this sort of coded existence, but there are little clues that a man could float, Mm -hmm. you know, little sort of, you know, wink and a nod. So he had a great friend, another cookbook author, Helen Evans Brown, who lived in Pasadena. Yes. And James would often go and visit Helen and her husband Philip and stay with them in Pasadena and they would go shop in Japantown in LA and there was one Japanese shop that Helen and James loved and that's where he bought his kind of first signature bow ties, these kind of silk bow ties. Later he would buy beautiful kind of silk patterns mm-hmm. and have his assistant, his houseman, as he called him, clay triplet, sew them for him. So, yeah, I think the bow tie is a really interesting symbol for James because it is, you know, a very conservative, avuncular, kind of old-fashioned garment, but kind of made out of some sort of, you know, sparkling (laughs) tie silk in bright pink or blue or orange. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a bit of a nod to his authentic personality.
1: I'm sad that we were deprived of more of that in his personality.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, in his kind of private socializing, it's, of course, there. And he lived in Greenwich Village for a reason, you know, like a lot of primarily gay men in the 1950s and 60s. It was a place where you could sort of relatively kind of let your hair down in Mm -hmm. your off hours and socialize. But yeah, the... Public who knew James from cookbooks and from, you know, the kind of endless cooking demonstrations that he did around the country. He would travel and not just promote his own books and cooking demos in, like, department stores and supermarkets, but for a long time promoted French champagne and French cognac. And so he'd, you know, be like flambeing things and in <laughs> department stores for women, and yeah, I do think about what would have been possible, not only for James personally, but for kind of American food in general, if James had been freer to be be more expressive, to be more relaxed, uh, with with, yeah. with his public image,
1: and also perhaps his cooking including his recipes, it seems that some of his recipes were not entirely his own, perhaps a result of him having felt like he had to fit a box. (laughs) But he was known to borrow, correct?
2: Yeah, there was some chicanery there. He was infamous for his borrowing of recipes. I mean, it ended friendships. Mm -hmm. At one point late in his life, he was involved in a lawsuit with Richard Olney. You know, a mentor of beards had kind of plagiarized... Recipes of onlys that he had shared with Beard before. Um, Simple French food came out. There was a settlement outside of court. Beard wasn't involved with the financial settlement, but it you know it was a huge embarrassment, kind of at the end of his career. But yeah, you know I mentioned Helen Evans Brown, his friend in wow. Pasadena, who was a really brilliant cookbook author and food writer, just full of these original ideas. They collaborated on a book in 1955 on outdoor cooking of grilling and barbecuing. And at the same time that they were kind of collaborating and coming up with recipes, James took some of those recipes and published them under his name for a different publisher. Oh, my gosh. You can just see her fury in letters. Wow. They both had the same literary agent, John Schaffner. And in letters to John Schaffner, Helen Evans Brown is, you know, I can't believe he did that. How dare he? Um, You know, to James... Helen is much more circumspect, you know, like, oh dear, I think you made a mistake. I think you may have, you know, and of course he, he kind of lied about it and said, oh yes, you know, that was in a stack of, that was in a stack of recipes that I sent to the typist and, you know, didn't intend to. That also speaks to how much more difficult it was to be a food writer, to be a cookbook author as a woman, Wow. Uh, you know, as opposed to a man. I mean, it, was, it was difficult for a man to make a living, but it was even harder for women um, like Helen Evans Brown. But, you know, at the same time, he may have kind of borrowed and plagiarized from people he knew, from friends. He also plagiarized himself, you know, incessantly. But he also really promoted his friends. So at the same time that he was kind of stealing Helen's recipes, he was really promoting her to food editors in New York. And I think he felt like, mm-hmm. you know, in his mind, he had the kind of friendship with Helen that would kind of allow for little transgressions like that because the sum of it was they were helping, helping each other. You know, they were trying to advance each other's careers.
0: What I find fascinating is here is a man who was known as the dean of American cookery. He was famous. He had a television show, many, many cookbooks. And he really cemented the idea of seasonal eating, eating simply. He really put American cuisine on the map long before any of these chefs, Alice Waters and Jeremiah Towers and any of them. He Mm. did it first. But yet you talk in the book That toward the end of his life, he really just wanted to disappear, turn his face to the wall and disappear. And that to me is so sad. Why do you think that is after all he created, all he did, that he felt that way in the end? I think at the end of his life,
2: he felt he hadn't really accomplished that much. I mean, for one thing, he had the kind of Mm. lifelong battles with depression I think he really tried to medicate that away, certainly with, you know, food and drinking. But, you know, he would also take tranquilizers, mill towns, which were a really sort of popular tranquilizer in the 1950s. He'd be popping mill towns and drinking and trying to deal with not only the stress of his career, but just this kind of deep, nagging depression that would just come and swallow Mm -hmm. him up a few times every year. I think as he got older, it was harder to push that away. It was harder to distract himself in the work and in deadlines and just push that away. I think perhaps he felt remorse for some of the things that he had done, some of the mistakes Mm -hmm. that he had made. But I think he kind of looked around in the late 1970s and saw that, you know, American food and the American food industry and food media had really kind of moved on from him. You know, he had a brilliant career, uh, primarily in the 1950s and 1960s. By 1972, when he wrote American Cookery, it was sort of a comeback for him. You know, there were so many changes in society and in food in the United States that James Beard even then was sort of a relic. And then in the late 1970s, American food media is really not interested in the kind of home cooking that Beard and even Julia Child really taught Americans to do with such brilliance. And then all of a sudden, you know, chefs and restaurants became the kind of sexy focus of American food media. By the late 1970s, certainly in the early 1980s, it was the rise of the rock star chef in America. And people at home, home cooks, Wanted to try to make restaurant food. James Beard's books and a lot of his work seemed kind of old fashioned. At the same time, James was really inspiring that younger generation of chefs. You know, really one of the most famous menus at Chez Panisse was in 1976, the Northern California Regional Dinner, Mm -hmm. cooked by Jeremiah Tower. And, you know, Chez Panisse, in its earlier years, the whole menu was written in French, and especially Jeremiah Tower had a lot of interest in cooking French food. And under Beard's influence, Jeremiah really wanted to change the language of the menu, put it in English, but also do a dinner that was devoted to food that was sourced in Northern California. So, you know, corn soup, corn from Mendocino and, um, you know, trout from Big Sur. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Alice Waters told me that she felt like this was a huge influence on Jeremiah. She herself was really influenced by Beard's uh, 1964 book, Delights and Prejudices, where Beard talks about growing up on the coast of Oregon mm-hmm. and, you know, going out and foraging blackberries and all of those wonderful berries in the Northwest, you know, salmon, it's a very distilled sense of eating in a particular landscape. And you know, that was definitely one of Alice Waters' inspirations. So he came obsolete in a way, but his ideas, the things that he'd planted, were really kind of sprouting for this younger generation of chefs.
1: And I don't think many people realize they have beard to thank for that.
2: Yeah, he's become really forgotten in many ways. I mean, I think his name has really primarily been kept alive because of the James Beard Awards and the James Beard Foundation. Exactly. You know, if you asked (laughs) even a lot of American chefs what recipes James Beard is known for, not that many people would be able to come up with anything.
0: I always think of the onion sandwich. That's what I think Mm. of. Right, right. It's the only one that I can think of. Right,
2: which went through all those different... Um, sort of names and iterations
0: as it evolved. But what's interesting, and I think what's so great about the book, is here's Beard, a complicated man, very complicated man, like all of us are, and you really capture all of that. And, of course, the central theme about this is how he is gay and what that meant and the implications of that and how that influenced Mm -hmm. and how it, it just took root in his life, which is missing from, I think, all of the other biographies. And this is bringing him back to center stage, especially now during the pandemic. So many people have turned to home cooking and home baking, and there's so much less attention from restaurants because so many of them were closed. And I think the debt we owe to him, you wrote beautifully when you say, if you live in the United States and believe in local food, rely on farmers, markets, and produce stands to supply flavor and seasonal delights to your cooking, if you take for granted access to milk, butter, and cheese produced in human-scale lots, bakers who employ patience and their hands, and American wines expressive of soil and tradition, you owe a debt to James Beard. And I think the book is a great reminder of that, John. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: It is incredible and so elucidating.
0: John, thank you so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Ah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, John.
0: John Birdsall left a longtime career as a restaurant cook and chef to write about food. The winner of two James Beard Awards for food and culture writing, he's written for Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Los Angeles Times, and taught culinary writing at the San Francisco Cooking School. You can find John on Twitter and Instagram at John underscore Birdsall. You know, Renee, I think it's so poignant to hear these stories about Beard. Of course, I think most people in the food world nowadays knows that Beard was gay. Mm -hmm. But as a gay man myself, I can't imagine having to keep my light under a bushel. I write about the one, I write about being gay, I write about our life together. I have photographs of us on social media. He, of course, we didn't have social media back then, but he couldn't do any of that in his writing. And to me, that's so sad.
1: Yeah. What gets me is just how devastating an effect it takes on a person to constantly feel as though they're judged, as though they can't be who they are. Yes. Right. And I think, you know, it's one thing for someone like me who doesn't have this life experience Mm -hmm. to read about it and be saddened and horrified. But then I go about my day and my life.
0: And it's not part of it.
1: Exactly. Every moment. I think we've all had experiences where for some intrinsic part of us, we have been criticized Mm -hmm. and made to feel less than.
0: And what's hard too, I think, and I've experienced this in my life, and I know the one has too, the amount of energy it takes not to be yourself. Absolutely. It's exhausting. And I hope that the book gives people a better understanding of James Beard, maybe a bit more compassion for what he went through, and at the same time, maybe a bit more understanding of the dilemma that a lot of LGBTQ people experience. That would be the greatest gift of all with the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I don't know how that cannot happen.
0: This podcast is produced by Overt Studios, and our producer is the deeply appreciated Adam Claremont. You can reach Adam and Overit Studios at overitstudios.com. And remember to subscribe to Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear and want to support us, consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Ciao.
1: Ciao.